Hello and welcome back to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's podcast, we're talking about the 2017 film Wonder Woman. This is the first film in the new Wonder Woman series and stars Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, a.k.a. Diana. This movie revises Diana's origin story from the Second World War to the First World War, representing a relatively rare portrayal of World War I in a major American motion picture. It's important for historians to take movies like Wonder Woman seriously, because even if the film doesn't claim to be a 100% factual representation of history, audiences still pick up information and form beliefs based on fictional films like this one. And a lot of people watched Wonder Woman's portrayal of the First World War. The movie grossed over 800 million US dollars worldwide. Today we get into the history behind the movie, focusing on its portrayal of World War I. How does it handle the portrayal and interpretation of war themes such as mechanization, total war, and trench warfare, or social history themes such as race and gender? How about important historical issues like war guilt? To what extent does the film rely on tropes from movies about World War II, retroactively applying them to World War I? To answer all these questions and much more, I'm joined by Melissa Wing. Melissa is a graduate student at the University of Victoria who specializes in the history of Canada during the First and Second World Wars. Melissa has also worked as a historical researcher for on-screen portrayals of World War II. We've got a great interview for you today, so let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Melissa Wing. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, could you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Uh, tell us a little bit about what your historical interests are. Yeah, I am a historian of the First and Second World War and, Can- and Canada's involvement in the First and Second World War. I did my BA at the University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, British Columbia. I'm from Maple Ridge, British Columbia, which is a little outside of Vancouver. I'm currently working on my MA thesis at the University of Victoria on Vancouver Island. My research currently centers on the Second World War. I know today we talk about the First World War, but that's where my love lies. (laughs) So it's all good. But yeah, I study Canadian war correspondents and their relationship to the army and the relationship between the press and the army during uh, wartime and and wartime reporting. Mm -hmm. And I continue to work on projects in both world wars and Canada's involvement in both. And that's just where where I like to be. That's my favorite part of history. I love to be there. Very cool. Yeah. And as a fellow media historian, the the war correspondent stuff is is very cool to me. And you and I actually know each other because when we were high school students, mm-hmm. we both did the government of Canada had this program, this educational program where it would fly in students from all over the country to Ottawa. And, and we both did one that was themed around the First World War. So kind of a funny coincidence that we're now both grad students in history. Yeah. And you're still working on on the World Wars. I my academic research is not so focused on the First World Wars, but I have, you know, worked on a couple of museum exhibits about the First World War. So, you know, it it sort of has still been an important part of what both of us do, which is cool. Yeah, that program was actually something that jump started me into history and it was the first example of oh, I can do this as a job. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I saw curators and, and people working on, on the history of the First and Second World War and, and Canada's history. And being from British Columbia, you don't see a lot of that because we don't have those like big heritage roots. But yeah, that program was really fun. I think there was over 135 of us mm-hmm. <laughs> from across Canada, all these teenagers in a bunkhouse. Unfortunately, the program 
did shut down due to COVID and the the lack of funding there. It's very cool that we still know each other mm-hmm. and that from what I know, I think we're one of the only ones to continue on into academia and to, to be continuing to work in history. Lots of them are teachers and and work in other fields and still see glimpses of them on the internet. But it's super cool that 10 years plus on, we still know each other from this program. It was a fun week. Yeah, for sure. So I was going to ask you about how you got into studying the history of the world wars. It sounds like partly because of this program, it at least helped spark your interest. But is there are there any other factors that really caught your eye? Yeah, my family history, to be quite honest, my grandmother's grandfather, so my great great-grandfather, I think is how that goes. Uh, William James Poppleton enlisted in the Canadian Expeditionary Force in 1915 and died just before the Battle of Vimy Ridge outside of Suchet in uh, 1917. He was taken prisoner of war after a failed trench raid and died due to a gunshot wound to the upper left thigh, I believe. Mm. His wife, Evelyn, was extremely upset and mad that her husband enlisted for war and up and left and died and left her with three children to raise by herself. And she kind of put all of his things in a box and, and we didn't find it until the early 2000s. So most of my childhood was having access to these very rare First World War artifacts and memorabilia and just being able to explore with it. Mm-hmm. And so learning about his history and my dad was a big uh, Second World War buff and really loved the movies like Tora Tora Tora, Hunt for Red October. I know that's Cold War, but, you know, those classics and a tradition of ours was to watch Band of Brothers every year in the fall. So I grew up watching those and really being interested in that. And yeah, that's just kind of where it all began and took a backseat to it when I started my undergraduate degree and tried to go into the the field of marketing. That didn't work so well. I didn't like that. <laughs> and was slowly convinced that I could do this as a job. And was very excited when I sort of like was able to pick that up and do that. And and from then on, history has been the number one thing for me. And I uh, it all started with encounters and with um, this family history and learning more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that can be a very like powerful in for a lot of people is those those sorts of especially for the world wars, but not exclusively, this sort of family collections of documents and artifacts and that sort of thing. I know this was part of one of the things that got me interested in history is a very similar story. My great grandfather was a soldier for the Canadian army in the first world war. And we had some of his sort of things and documents from the war. And that was interesting when I was a kid. Speaking of movies also that spark your interest in terms of history Today we're talking about Wonder Woman, the, the 2017 Wonder Woman film. Yes. And so for listeners who haven't seen the movie, it would be helpful to briefly summarize it. So if you want to watch the movie and you don't want to be spoiled, this is going to be the, our quick spoiler of the film. So yeah, you've been warned. Wonder Woman is also known as Diana. Her backstory starts on this island that has been hidden from... The rest of human society, the the world of man, they call it in the movie. The movie, and only women live on this island. This is sort of, I'm not totally clear on their relationship to the Greek gods, but they have some relationship to the Greek gods, so they're they're sort of quasi godly. It changes. It depends on what movie, what comic book, what decade. It's it's all different, but you you've got it right. 
they're they're <laughs> separate from the world of man because man is evil. Yes. Right. And there's clearly something special about Diana. She's like the daughter of the queen. And also she there's something magical about her, godly. And she's trained extensively in how to fight and that sort of thing. And, you know, one day this First World War American pilot, he's a he's a spy for the British, but he's an American pilot, crashes his plane in their waters so he can see the island where normally it's hidden and he's being pursued by German soldiers. And I should add part of the backstory here about the Amazons, part of their history, their lore is that they're constantly worried about Ares, the, the Greek god of war, and that he's, they, ha, they're, they have some sort of mission to topple him and defeat him and, and bring peace to the world. And so when these First World War soldiers show up, they interpret this as some sort of sign of Ares, because this is, you know, the war to end all wars. It seems like the god of war must be behind it. And so they fight off the German soldiers and... Diana decides she's going to leave this island to go help end this war to end all wars. And so she's going to leave with this pilot, Steve Trevor, to do that. So she shows up in London. It's 1918. It's it's about, a, I think, a month before the end of the war. Yeah, weeks. Weeks before the end, yeah. And Steve goes back. And, and it, so what Steve Trevor had been doing before he crash-landed his plane is he had been spying on some like like german you see the thing is and we'll get into this later <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's supposed to be some sort of top secret lab in the ottoman empire that's making weird gas created by dr poison who again yes. we'll talk about later but it's not very clear why it's there what it's doing what the purpose of it is and not to, again, sound like a broken record, but we'll get into what all the tropes of that mean in a bit. But Steve Trevor's mission is to stop Dr. Poison, but also to be a spy, but just a spy in general. Like, none of that's really made very clear in this. But yes, at this point in the story, Diana is taken back by, by Steve Trevor, and she's sort of looking at the world for the first time through through uh, virgin eyes and gets to kind of act as our guide as the audience as, as she walks through this world and asks questions that the audience wish they could ask. Sometimes doesn't ask enough, in my opinion, but mm-hmm. Steve Trevor is, is on, the, on the hunt to end, end this secret mission by the Germans. Yeah, he's discovered this, this new gas weapon and he's going to report it back to his higher-ups in London there's a few scenes of them in London that are supposed to be like goofy, like, oh, Diana doesn't know like how to dress in 1918 <laughs> London society, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then he reports back and his sort of higher ups say like, well, we can't do anything about this right now. It would jeopardize the armistice negotiations. So Steve decides he's got to put a stop to it himself going over the heads of his his commanding officers. And so he puts together this ragtag crew. I call them the band of misfits. Yep. Because <laughs> that's essentially what they are. Yep. So there's a, a few different guys he gathers together. And then along with Diana, they're going to head over to 
Belgium to put a stop to this. All of this as well as he's been talking to Diana about the Germans, about, he's, he's mentioned Eric Ludendorff, and she believes that Eric Ludendorff, this important leader for Germany, is Ares. And so she's going to go over there and put a stop to Ares while he's going to do this mission against this new gas weapon. They end up receiving some illicit funding from somebody in the Imperial War Cabinet, Sir Patrick Morgan, who is a a Mm -hmm. made-up person. He's not a real historical figure. And they head over to Belgium. They fight some battles. Diana really shows how awesome she is at kicking butt. Uh, (laughs) She's like basically single-handedly storms a trench and then... I will throw tank. Yeah, yeah. That's her. (laughs) Yeah, she like liberates a a Belgian village with the help of these guys, but not much help. No, 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 she doesn't. I mean, they give her a lift. There's this one scene where Steve Trevor, <laughs> remembering back to the the fight on the beaches in Themyscira, remembers that the the Amazon warriors had this setup where they had a shield and, and two of them would go underneath it and then would sort of give a boost to the other warrior that would jump on top. And he's like, oh, we can do that and gives Diana this this boost. I mean, at this point, it's already been established that Diana can essentially fly. So mm-hmm. I get the callback. But yeah, that whole fight scene, I think. That whole fight scene's really cool to watch. It's in no way real at all. No. But it's it's cool to watch. Yeah, I mean, she's a superhero, right? It's it's goofy. But so eventually they try to, like, infiltrate German high command. That doesn't go great. And the, so they, they end up at this German airfield where all these gas weapons are being loaded onto a bomber. And Diana goes and fights Eric Ludendorff. And eventually she kills him with a with a sword she like stabs him to death and the war is not ending and she's like what's going on here clearly eric ludendorff is not aries what no <laughs> the twist is the guy who was providing them illicit funding and that sort of thing is aries this sir patrick morgan character <gasps> so he shows up and she starts fighting him and he's like, join me and all that stuff. At the same time, the non-superhero characters, Steve, Trevor, and his buddies are attempting to intercept this, this gas weapon. He ends up storming the plane and sacrifices himself to blow up the plane and destroy the weapon so that it can't be used because they were planning to use it against London. Mm-hmm. And she ends up defeating Ares in this battle, but Steve Trevor dies and that's kind of the end of the movie. Yeah, weird ending, hey. I I uh, I I should also say for anyone that's listening and is like gas, that's a normal thing in the first world war. Dr. Poison had developed some sort of weird end all be all gas. Yeah. That while they were trying to infiltrate high command, they tested on the village that they had just liberated. Right. Which is a big blow for Diana and she has a bit of a fit and realizes, you know, comes to this crescendo point in the story and what the writers obviously have been alluding to, that all men are evil in some capacity and Diana can't trust anybody. Mm. And and she leaves. But yeah, the way it ends in that battle is, from a historical point of view, I think some of the most telling parts of, of the storytelling. And yeah, one of my favorite bits of dialogue to just dissect because there's a lot of juicy bits in there. And I don't think it's that obvious if that makes any sense i would agree i think yeah we'll definitely get into that 
Before we get into the, the specifics of the historical interpretation, I wanted to talk a little bit about my general impression of the film and, and maybe if yours, if you agree or not. In my view, some movies that are set in history really focus on the history and sort of make the, the history and the time period in which the film is set an integral part of the plot. And others just sort of use it as like a setting for the story they want to tell, but could easily tell that story in a different setting. But the, for whatever reason, the director thought this was fitting, but maybe not like essential in some ways. And my sense is that Wonder Woman is definitely more of one of these films where it's like, well, we've picked the First World War, but it could easily be a different war. What do you think about this? Do you agree? Uh, yeah. The reasoning for using the First World War at all was kind of baffling and is what sent me in a tailspin to look into this film a little bit more. I mean, when it came out, I was shocked because... At this point in time, it's around 2017 when this movie comes out. So early 2016, there's murmurings of what the plot is going to be. And the setting of the First World War is kind of crazy. I mean, now we have movies like 1917 and, and a handful of others that use the First World War as not only the backdrop, but of, as a piece of storytelling. Mm -hmm. But at this point, Wonder Woman is the first popular film or mainstream film in decades to even mention the First World War as a major plot point. And in a way, you know, as I've watched this film a few times, I do think that the setting of the First World War is almost its own character. Mm. They're trying to fold it into the story in a way that you can't do with the Second World War or that, you know, because you're taking Diana out of her original origin story, which is the Second World War, and putting her into a very different war that is hard to articulate you're kind of having to like fold the two together to make them fit, which doesn't work <laughs> in my opinion. So it's a backdrop, but in many ways it's a character like mm. to go back to talking about that village and, and Lutendorf doing the experiment of sending the gas to the village. Like this is a major plot point and a major character moving point for Diana and the other characters. These are all rooted in common things that we know about the first world war, mm. i.e., you know, gas attacks and, refugees and small villages and, and civilians and so I think it's really interesting because I don't think it was needed to be in the first world war whatsoever it really wasn't but the product that came out of it really did jumpstart a lot of new first world war stories and so I think that's really interesting I know I got on a bit of a tangent off that question but that'll happen with me podcasts are for tangents I feel like my my podcast is just one big tangent opportunity i am in the right place exactly as you mentioned wonder woman aka diana has had multiple origin stories over the years but originally her story is based in the second world war it's a very similar story where steve trevor crash lands yeah near their island but it's during world war ii and the mm -hmm. comic was originally released wonder woman makes her first appearance in 1941 correct and then her first feature comic was in 1942. Mm -hmm. So those were, at the time, current events. Dr. Poison's origin story in the comics is also in World War II. So she is originally a, a World War II character. So the filmmakers made a choice specifically to move this story from World War II to World War I. Why do you think they decided to do that? 
well, I don't even have to think they, they said it and they said it very, very loudly mm-hmm. and publicly. I should say as well, something that I've learned about the comics as I dive into it a little bit more is in the new 52 origin story of Diana, Zeus and Ares and the Greek gods are very prominent and Ares is actually a common villain in those. So the the movie does take elements of William Molston, Marston, Mar- Marston, the man who wrote them. Mm-hmm of the origin story from the forties and the new sort of, you know, revived story from the early two thousands and really like folds them together, which is super interesting. But back to the original question. So the filmmakers actually give us a very specific answer as to why they chose the first world war in interviews. Screenwriter Alan Heinberg actually talks about this and says, I wanted to move it or we wanted to move it to the First World War to reflect current events. And at this point, the movie's coming out in 2016, 2017. And the biggest thing happening at this point is the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States. We're a few years off of Russia's taking of Crimea. There are populist movements and fascist movements and far right wing parties sort of gaining speed across the globe. And the filmmakers and the screenwriters said they really wanted to reflect this nationalist rise in current day, which I think is really interesting because using history as a reflection of current times is nothing new. For anyone listening and wanting to sort of read something pretty succinct but also really poignant is Margaret McMillan's The Uses and Abuses of History. It's a series of lectures that she did and really talks about stuff like this, like using history as a tool to sort of reflect the present to find heroes to find answers to try and find comfort and and solve the chaos of current events and so that is what I thought was super interesting because if we're trying to talk about the first world war I wouldn't think using it to talk about nationalism would be the number one choice like yes we have of course British and German like Britain and Germany are like head to head and they're trying to go toe to toe and it's very patriotic but the first world war is not an easy war to put and depict on screen there's not a good guy and there's not a bad guy and unlike the second world war where there's very clearly a bad guy a very clearly an okay good guy it's it's much harder it's much harder than the second world war and because of that it's this film sort of just folds the two in weird ways in some moments and it's not good (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it gets really complicated and i find it it's it's hard as a historian to watch because you don't want these tropes and misinformation to sort of be the leading knowledge of the war but this is the only popular thing at the at the time that was talking about the First World War. So this is where the most people are going to get their information about this. And it's very wrong a lot of the time. And I get it. We're in a fun fantasy land that is Wonder Woman. And we shouldn't take it so seriously. But the reason why I would argue that this movie should be taken seriously is because it is the only depiction of the First World War in popular culture for close to two or three years until we see more movies and more films and more stories released. But for a long time, this film was the spearhead of public knowledge on the First World War. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. This is part of my, the point of this podcast for me is that most people are not 
going to sit down and read the latest academic book on the First World War, most people are watching Wonder Woman or something like that. And yeah. even even though it's a fictional movie, and at some level people know that this is fictional, it's not intended to be 100% accurate, this is how a lot of people pick up things that they feel like they know about history. They f- sort of form beliefs about history from watching often fictional or semi-fictional films. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who would watch this movie and feel like they kind of knew something about the First World War coming out of it. And they, there are some things that are not bad representations in this film, and there are others where you would say, like, this is pretty iffy. This is, this is, wow, this is, yeah. this is different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to the question around why they changed the plot. So you alluded to these interviews that they've given. So I'll read a couple of quotes from the filmmakers that I think illustrate the points you've already made. So asked about this, one of the screenwriters on the film, Alan Heinberg. This is, by the way, in an article from Entertainment Weekly in 2017 by Nicole Sperling. So screenwriter Alan Heinberg said, Quote, we are in a very World War I world today with nationalism and how it would take very little to start a global conflict. He also added, quote, it's the first time we had an automated war. The machine gun was a new invention. Gas was used for the first time. New horrors were unleashed every day. And the director of the film, Patty Jenkins, has said, quote, at first I questioned it because it wasn't her actual origin story, but very quickly I saw the genius behind it. World War I is the first time that civilization as we know it was finding its roots, but it's not something that we really know the history of, which is an interesting quote. I feel like we know some history. Yeah, I also dived into that article. I have quotes yeah. from that article on my screen. Patty Jenkins also, in another film interview with Film and City, it's a YouTube channel, she admits that the First World War is very complicated. Mm-hmm. And she said that she wanted to create this intricate fantasy world where the audience could understand the horrors of war without being, quote, oversaturated by them, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. And she says, too, that, you know, it's hard to capture this war. It has many complexities and even goes as far to say that, you know, no one can, un- you know, the people that would understand this, they're just beyond me. And I'm like, well, that's me. I'm sitting on the other side <laughs> of the screen. And she says she wanted to make something that, quote, was the weight of something real without having to follow one clear narrative, which, yes, she does that. But the not following the clear narrative is the problem. Mm. And Patty Jenkins comments and Alan Heinberg's comments about this is the first mechanized war. This is the first time humanity's put to the test, I think, is very Western thinking not to be that person. But since the dawn of time, war has happened. So there have been, yes, not maybe fully mechanized wars or with machine guns and all this, but there's been some pretty brutal conflict in human history. Of course. And to say that this is the first time where we see this test of morality is kind of disingenuous because Hmm. we have these conflicts across the globe in multiple cultures and, and, and countries and and the world is constantly reshaping. And this happens well before 1914. And I, I understand, again, this plays into the fact that this is what people know of war is First World War and Second World War. And, and it ties into, again, what we've been talking about, this public perception of what history is. But yeah, the more and more I read that article and hear those comments of, of this is the first time, I just have to shake my head a little bit because if there's more to war 
been these westernized conflicts and i wish more people would know about it and we just don't have that yet i think that's a fair point it's odd to me also that they're emphasizing nationalism mechanization all first world war developments when none of those feature that prominently in the film i mean like i guess literally if you're talking about weapon development the gas attack is a big thing in the film but this thing about like this is the first time we had machine guns on a big scale and i'm like well that that, that wasn't really that important to the plot, though, so I don't understand why you're emphasizing that. I do think there's a big factor here that is not getting discussed as much about what you said, but not in these interviews, about the sort of moral gray area of the First World War, where one of the themes of the film, and I think we're going to talk about this more later, one of the oddities of the film is at some points it's intending to be like, there's no clear bad guy, everybody is bad. But then at other times, the film is like, oh, but the Germans, they're the bad guys. Yeah. So I think in terms of that first piece where nobody's clearly the villain, that is an easier story to tell with the first rule. And the idea that Diana is, that Wonder Woman is a hero for peace. She's against war and she opposes this war, just sort of like war in general. And it's easier to do that with a story in the first world war than it is in a Second World War setting where it's there's very clearly a villain in the Nazis. But that's also a boring story, you know? And that's why I think that they couldn't fully go there. Because mm. like you said, the film does... I'm not saying peace is boring. Peace is good. I need to make that very, very clear. But I'm We're saying... All, this is a pro-peace podcast. <laughs> we are pro-peace. But I, I need to... You know, say I've worked in in film and documentary filmmaking and there's always this need for a, a hero story arc. And without it, you lose your audience. And so in this film, we have Wonder Woman, the God, and we have Ares, the God, messing with some human stuff. And so this idea that what they're trying to say is that all humankind have a little bit of evil, but we're all, we'll all do the good thing in the end is kind of, is, is just stupid because they're also very clearly and very explicitly reinforcing the myth, not myth because reinforcing German guilt and the German guilt that came out of the Treaty of Versailles and this sort of point in history where, Germany is given most of the blame for the First World War. Mm -hmm. So you can't argue everyone did it while also saying Germany did it. And this film does that because people know in their common understanding of history, Germany did it. So why would you say that we all did it? But the British are the good guys. Why would you take that away from me? You know? That's yeah. what they're wrestling with. And that's, again, why I think the First World War is really nuanced and it's hard to make it into a story. And with superheroes, you have to have a good guy. You can't have no good guy. That's the whole point of the superhero story. Mm -hmm. We want to see who superhero smash. And <laughs> Diana does that. Oh, and a quick tidbit on the technological advancements for any of you out there that can get a hand on the original Wonder Woman movie posters she's holding a tank with one <laughs> hand and i need you to know that the tracks on the tank are put on upside down so 
if the if the tank was ever to move, it would just rip her hand off, oh, which I think is really funny. It's also a tank from the Second World War. So All right, well. it's like not even so any of the technological advancements they're saying they need to put in the film. They're wrong anyways. So <laughs> that's funny. I tend to give people a bit of a pass about the technology thing. But if you're going to go in the interviews and say, oh, this is a big theme, then maybe. maybe this is my right. this is my <laughs> point. Anytime someone's like, why are you making a big fuss out of this? They're just having fun. And I'm like, no, but they ma- they started it. They went in the <laughs> interviews and they said, this is why they've done it this way. And they've pulled in real historical characters and they've pulled in real history. Oh, boy, I'm getting heated. I can hear my mother in my ear going, it's just a film. <laughs> They started it. They brought in real things, real historical figures, real historical events, and expected us to just treat it as fiction. Mm. And I, for one, do not stand for this. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. This is what this po- this podcast is for. You know, getting your your anger at historical films in your research area out. It's uh, it's like a like a therapy session for historians. This is like five years bro- like five years brewing. So this is great. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit more about the depiction of Germans in this film, because I think that's an important historical theme here. So there are obviously some moments that are intended to show the Germans as the villains. Like we see them gassing a Belgian village of civilians is, I think, the probably the worst example we see. But there are others. We see moments where there's kind of implications that everyone is at fault for the war like, as soon as Diana defeats Ares, everyone is kind of chummy. The German soldiers are embracing the ragtag crew with the, the British guys or the British allied guys. And there there are other moments that are kind of like that, where it's sort of saying, mm, the war is the real villain here in some ways yeah. or something. And I feel like this is a complicated representation of Germans as whether villains or not villains. Mm-hmm. And I think to some degree, there's an effort to like kind of map World War II onto World War One here. But I think in other ways, sort of tell a more complicated story and it just doesn't quite do either completely. And I think to some degree, there's an effort to put a lot of this on Ludendorff specifically. I think that the way they sort of square the circle here is say, well, Eric Ludendorff, he's really the warmonger behind Germany. And so he's a bad guy. And we see him doing all sorts of awful stuff in this movie. He, at one point... Just shoots a guy? <laughs> yeah, he shoots a guy, gasses a bunch of German officers who are like, no, we need to sign the peace treaty. And he's like, well, I'm going to lock you in this room and gas you. But he sort of is responsible for a lot of the really bad stuff. So in some sense, there's an effort to say like, well, Germans are bad, but specifically Eric Ludendorff is bad. But maybe the regular guys are not at fault. What did you think about this representation of Germans? I thought it was weird. Ludendorff in particular, I have a bone to pick with the person that wrote Ludendorff. Hmm. Because I understand why they chose him as the main person to be this like, I will go down with the ship man. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eric Lutendorf was the architect of the German Spring Offensive in early 1918. So when the Russians pulled out of the Eastern Front due to their own civil war and the Americans hadn't fully mobilized yet and weren't organized in Europe, Lutendorf, along with von Hindenburg, sort of pushes for this final offensive where the German army tries to go from, you know, take this large stretch and and two movements and it just fails miserably because Lutendorff doesn't really have this end goal 
And it is, for many historians, the point where Germany realizes this is it. We really can't do it. And our last chance was a spring offensive and we failed. And what I think is really interesting, I mean, I went and saw this movie in theaters with my best friend. And she was very embarrassed when, like I previously mentioned, Lutendorf just shoots a guy. And I laughed because that is not something this guy would do. Right. And the whole theater is silent and I'm giggling. But yeah, I think that particular scene really just shows how much they're trying to force this Nazi character into a First World War historical figure. Even his uniform is this weird mix of First and Second World War things. It's not... Mm, That's interesting. It's not real. His... Well, I won't sign the armistice. I will take it down. It's it's the struggle. You know, again, this thing that Adolf Hitler is very known for is the struggle. And I will take it down and I will take Germany down with me. If if I don't win, we all go. And those are very Second World War things. And Lutendorf, too, is kind of shorted because he is one of the first people to go to the Kaiser after the spring offensive doesn't work and say hey we need to sign an armistice Hmm. we need to we need to end this because we're running out of materials we're running out of men we're constantly going to help out our allies you know austria hungary is nothing there's nothing left of her and we can't do it anymore you need to sign the armistice so i thought it was very funny that the screenwriters make Lutendorf and to be this person that will not take no for an answer and will not sign the armistice at all when in reality he was one of the first ones to do it. Why do you think the filmmakers included Ludendorff as a character instead of making up a fictional character for him? There's no other character in the film that is a, a real historical figure or like clearly based on one. I mean like Or is there? Is there? You tell me, is there another character I didn't I didn't notice? So like any good comic book fan, you need to sit through the entire credits. Oh, I did not. <laughs> if we go back to the first half hour of the film, Diana and Steve Trevor are with Allied Command or in British headquarters and they're talking to a bunch of British generals. Yep. And this one particular general who says to Diana, that's just what soldiers do. They die. And they get into a bit of a tiff. He's credited in the end credits as Field Marshal Douglas Haig. Oh, that's interesting. But in the scene, he's only referred to as Sir. He's actually addressed as Sir like seven times in that scene, but he's never addressed as Haig. Hmm. And I found that really interesting because Douglas Haig was a popular First World War British military official. I mean, he's he's as well known as Lutendorff, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And it begs the question, why was a speaking character who is in a scene not given a name if he's a real person. And I think, again, that goes back to the fact that the film is trying to dance this line of, like, who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? And the only characters that are pulled out of history and explicitly named are the German characters. Hmm. Lutendorff, the Kaiser, von Hindenburg, these characters are named, whereas the British characters who apparently are real but never referred to as real mm-hmm. are still in this fictional fantasy land yeah so anchoring these characters in their real life depictions or with their real life anchoring points is 
whether people know it or not, a way of enforcing, again, Germans were the bad guy. The German, German guilt is the number one thing. But yeah, that always bothered me. I went back, you know, watched the whole credits and I'm trying to see because there's this whole round table in multiple scenes of British officials, German officials, and I'm wondering if they give them names at all. And on the British side, they do name Douglas Haig. And I mean, they get his depiction, right? He was a general that was in favor of a war of attrition, mm-hmm. you know, just battering and bruising the enemy until they go down. Yeah. And, you know, would be the kind of person to say that's what soldiers do. They die. So why not just call him by his name? That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. When I was watching the film, they introduced this character, Sir Patrick Morgan, who ends up being Ares. And when they first introduced the character in his first scene, you know, he seems very stately. I was like, oh, that's David Lloyd George. Yeah. That's the British prime minister at the time. But he's not. He's this made-up guy. And I was like, why have they, why have they made up a guy? Like, I don't... They're trying to be edgy. I, I think maybe it wouldn't play well with audiences to be like, hey, did you know David Lloyd George? Actually, <laughs> the god of war. Can you imagine? It might not go over well <laughs> in the British, British audience. Yeah, and like him too, is, it's interesting because again, he is the British side to the we're both bad. But... In my opinion, I don't think he counts because he's a god. Yeah, he's trying to manipulate both sides to extend the war is sort of his thing. And then Diana has this British villain and this German villain. But still, in terms of who is the human villain who will actually take the blame, it's still Lutendorf. Mm -hmm. Are there any other narrative tropes about the First World War that this film really leans on? Not really. I mean, again, like I said, there's the gas. The big thing that I think Patty Jenkins and the film writers tried to do because they were emphasizing the First World War so much was just cram everything you possibly can in a one scene. Doesn't matter if it fits or not. Yeah. So the the no man's land scene or the going over the top scene where so for those of you who haven't watched the film diana is hellbent on getting to the war as she keeps telling steve trevor take me to the war and steve trevor's like well i can't i can't just like take you there and they end up getting close to the western front and we see people who are displaced refugees we see a horse stuck in the mud we see a guy with his leg blown off and diana's like i have to help this person i have to help this person and you know the ragtag gang is like you got to keep going you can't help them but all of those things although very real in the first world war would never happen in this capacity and i and i understand it's it's a storytelling tool so that people understand where they are but because, again, we haven't seen any reference of the First World War, you're really having to force it down people's throats. And then when we get to the trench, there's like civilians in there, which, again, not a thing. And Steve Trevor alludes to the fact that this is these guys have been in these trench for a year. They barely made an inch, which is very true. The First World War is a war that is stagnant. It's not one that's moving. But then when we move into the village, it's all of a sudden the Second World War fighting. You have like yeah. mouse holing almost. And there's a guy in a clock tower. Why is there a oh, side note? Why is there always a sniper in a clock tower? <laughs> it doesn't matter what war, <laughs> what war film it is. There's always a guy in a clock tower. It's interesting. You know, like Band of Brothers, they got a guy in a clock tower. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
this is a weird tangent maybe, but I feel like the clock tower is this symbol of your sort of like innocent European mm. village, and then you've sort of brought the war to it. And it's also just a high point in a small town. Yeah, it's strategically high point. Yeah, but I like your I like your observation of like, you know, we're corrupting the innocence of the village at the center point of town. Yeah. But yeah, this that whole battle, A, is very Second World War. Mm. It's a lot of town fighting. It's hand-to-hand, well, not hand-to-hand combat, but you've got a lot of running through the streets, hiding around the corners, putting people inside. Like, this is very Second World War, what we would see on screen as the Second World War. The soldiers just, like, getting out of the trenches and running into no man's land is hilarious. It's, again, would not happen. I don't even think at this point. So where they are geographically... No man's land would not be possible because to cross because it'd just be mud. So that's another thing that I thought was pretty funny. Mm. But yeah, this war of movement is a Second World War filmmaking tool. Right. Also, of course, we have this giant Gothic castle that Lutendorf uses as German high command with the banners and like, and it's in a forest. Like it's, a, <laughs> it's, it screams Nazi. Like, it just screams Nazi. And I, again, it's this weird melding of the two using anchoring points that the audience will understand from the Second World War and then introducing, like, a, a plethora of First World War elements so that the audience can kind of understand this is a different conflict. Right. That all makes sense to me. I think those sorts of images really... They're really blending those together. One thing that stood out to me that was interesting, by the way, when in that scene in the village where he's the sniper in the clock tower and she ends up basically just destroying the clock tower is at the start of the First World War, this was a moral criticism of the German army was that they were destroying these historic old churches in Belgium and and other, not just churches, although churches was a big one, but these sort of historic old pieces of, belgian heritage mm-hmm. and so i thought it was funny in this scene it's not like a big historical criticism but i did think it was funny that she just destroys the historic church in the town and all the villagers are like yay i know <laughs> yeah. and that's like i mean this is every historian or every person who loves history wa- listening to this i just said watching but you cannot see me i hope no everyone listening to this you just see the historical artifacts or like buildings toppling to the ground and you're like no (laughs) (laughs) no not the not the pyramids like yeah so i i totally understand where you're coming from getting into some of the specific military history stuff of the first world war obviously the one of the main sources of conflict the sort of earthly conflict not really the god level conflict Mm -hmm. but the earth level conflict revolves around the idea that Eric Ludendorff, in collaboration with this sort of mad scientist type character, Dr. Poison, they're developing an even more deadly gas attack and that he's going to use it. He's going to bomb London with this new gas weapon. I think this is not literally true, but is it accurate to say that Germany was sort of at this late stage of the war, maybe like October 1918, I think is approximately when this is taking place. Is it accurate to say that Germany was trying to manifest some sort of pull a rabbit out of a hat victory in the First World War? Or was an Allied victory pretty much inevitable at this point? Like I mentioned, the spring offensive is the big pull the rabbit out of the hat moment. You know, they're 
they think that they can put the entente, when I say triple entente, because I'm a First World War purist, allies, Second World War, entente is First World War. <laughs> so you got France and Britain and uh, those fighting forces on the Western Front. They're thinking, okay, we can really push them back and make some ground and sort of give ourselves a little bit more of a buffer. Yeah. But Lutendorf doesn't really have an end game. He's just thinking, pull out the flamethrowers and go to town and see how far you can get. But after that, you know, by the summer, it's pretty much a losing battle. I mean, right. again, because I study the Canadian context, the 100 days, the last 100 days, the Canadians really push from Arras in France to Mons, which for any of you wanting a fun fact, the Canadians start the war in Mons and they end the war in Mons. So they didn't go anywhere. They went back and forth for two, for four years, four or five years. But yeah, at this point, Germany is just trying to figure out a way out that's not going to hurt them. Obviously, as history tells, that's not the case. And they're melting down metal that they have i mean civilians are without resources they're just they're pretty done yeah and they're needing a way out and this war is a war of attrition it's it's one that got started out of essentially a giant power measuring contest and a tumbling of alliances and of course a plethora of other reasons that are too complicated to fit into this podcast in this amount of time but once the war gets going nobody really knows how it's going to stop because there's no clear directive as to why they're fighting so much. Mm. And by 1915, 1916, both sides realize it's whoever runs out of stuff first loses. Right. And for Germany, that's, that's them. Mm -hmm. I definitely thought this seemed to overemphasize, and I think this happens a lot in history. People do this seem to like overemphasize the likelihood that Germany could somehow make a big comeback because it was out of, as you said, out of supplies. The German economy is in a really rough state at this point. Mm -hmm. Politically, I think Germany is experiencing a lot of internal turmoil at this stage. And so it, I think it's easy to introduce some drama and be like, oh, but this last potential gasp of the enemy but like yeah. a lot of the time in terms of these conflicts you know the end has sort of been brewing for a while i think this is me this is my like grandiose sweeping comment that is probably not 100 percent accurate for the podcast but a lot of the time in modern wars they're drawn out the ending is drawn out but the writing is on the wall for a while yeah i'd have to agree i mean again that's a very oversimplified way of of putting it and of course yes <laughs> all you operational historians out there listening to a story about wonder woman i'm sure are just <laughs> rolling their eyes but yeah that's in layman's terms is always the way it is the writing is on the wall and there's someone that is gonna try everything they can before before they come to that point and mm -hmm. i i again really want to make clear that in the First World War, Germany's emphasis on trying everything they can was very different than Hitler's emphasis of trying everything he could before the end of the war. Like, the German generals at the end of the First World War still wanted Germany to exist mm -hmm. at the end of the conflict, whereas Hitler was hell-bent on taking down the whole ship if, if he was not going to win, which is, again, not to sound like a broken record, 
what this film is toying with with Lutendorf right. is how to balance the two, but you can't, and you, you just shouldn't have put a Nazi in a First World War film, is my opinion. <laughs> right, right. I wanted to also ask you about the depictions we see of civilians and refugees. We see some of this when Diana is approaching the Western Front, and eventually she liberates this Belgian village. I was wondering, again, because this is such a late stage of the war, how many refugees would really actually be this close to the fighting in this last month of the war or so? I don't know. What were your thoughts on this? So people are being displaced all throughout the war in Belgium in particular because they are the first country to sort of see the sweeping effects in 1914. Millions of Belgians flee. Over 250,000 end up in the UK. More end up actually in the Netherlands, which causes Hmm. a problem for the Netherlands and their population because there's such a huge influx. From what I understand, refugees and, and people who were displaced at the beginning of the war did end up going back at some point, whether it was because they're like, this is just my reality now, or they enlisted to fight at the front. But in Belgium in particular, where this movie is, I don't know how many people would be moving around at this point in 1918. Mm-hmm. But people were displaced throughout the First World War for more than just conflict. In Russia, we see a lot of people displaced for religious persecution. I mean, I can't not talk about the Armenian genocide as well. Mm-hmm. Millions of people there, hundreds of thousands of people there, displaced and killed. And yeah, every country just sort of has this r- giant shifting of civilians and in, in conflict. And it's quite interesting because that just never stops. I mean, we see that currently with uh, multiple conflicts in all parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But this giant refugee crisis is something that does take Europe a few years after the war to figure out and to settle down. And the countries that do have a giant influx of people from war-torn countries do have issues readjusting and how they're going to integrate these people into their into their country and, in, and into their systems. I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the film's depictions of gender and race. So I'll start by focusing on gender. There's a lot of scenes in this film, particularly the parts of the film that are set in London, but there are other parts as well, that are sort of about Diana not understanding gender norms in this time and place. And I think that's partly also intended to be for the audience. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, gender is a big part of Wonder Woman. There are aspects of it that are a very feminist story, but there are also... She's a very gendered hero in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. But I think a lot of these representations are intended to be like, well, Diana is questioning, well, why do I have to, you know, not speak in front of this audience of men is also intended to be for the audience being like, yeah, why shouldn't women be able to speak in this context or that sort of thing, right? Yeah. So I was wondering what you thought of the depictions of gender in this film. I think they try. Like you said, it's more used to reinforce the fact that Diana is in 1918 and as a woman does not have the same privileges as men. I think they just kind of fall on their face with it a little bit. It is only used as a storytelling tool. Like the example you brought up, Diana's in the Imperial War Cabinet meeting and 
all these generals are like, oh my gosh, there's a woman in here. Get her out. How, how dare they? Yeah. And that's never real. Like she goes, oh, why can't I be in there? And then that's never addressed again. Yeah. And then Steve Trevor is like, I will take you to the front. Don't worry about it. But even when they're doing the montage of her trying on clothes, like it's more of a comedic element than anything. I mean, her kicking her legs around being like, how do women fight in these? It's mm-hmm. Wonder Woman herself is the comment is the way I always put it. And this character in this film had so much lead up to it in terms of like feminist voices that I don't know. I don't speak for the filmmakers, obviously, but just Wonder Woman existing, I think was the the comment like she's there, Mm -hmm. but that takes away from the fact that she is also presented as a demigod and not a person. Right. So it's hard sometimes because I find that with female characters especially superhero characters they're meant to be all-encompassing of like the best of this the best of that but then it just makes them out of reach for the audience Mm -hmm. so i understand these questions are trying to bring her back down but they don't they don't work in the way that i think they wanted them to that makes sense i think also if you wanted to make a movie that was very seriously interrogating early 20th century gender norms which this movie is not like it's not really intending to do that obviously it's a fun superhero movie but if you really wanted to do that you would have more of the characters emphasize gender as a way of perceiving the world whereas in this it's really the imperial war cabinet guys but like steve trevor i mean like there's a little bit of gender to how he treats diana but by and large he's like oh you're a woman who can fight okay cool i'll take you to the front you know yeah I also enjoy the fact that it's an issue when they're in London that Diana's wearing her like fighting outfit. And then as soon as they get to the front where it, I need to, I cannot stress this enough, would be a very big issue. It's, it's no longer a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And I say, I say it would be an issue, not because of, again, stereotypes of what women can wear, but because this is a weird tangent i also study sexuality in the first and second world wars but Mm -hmm. the british officials would not want the men to have be distracted by anything and a woman and essentially a unitard would be a big problem (laughs) so (laughs) but yeah that's a side note i will say this is uh this is interesting in terms of the history of wonder woman comics is i pulled up a quote here when wonder woman when when her first feature comic came out in 1942 the National Organization for Decent Literature, which is quite the name, put Sensation Comics, she was published in Sensation Comics, put it on a blacklist of publications for youth. It was like, this is not for youth to read. Because it de- this is the quote. It said, quote, Wonder Woman is not sufficiently dressed. End quote. <laughs> That's amazing. So Wonder Woman has a history of anti-feminist criticism to it. Moving on to the theme of race in the film. So almost all of the characters in the movie are white European characters, which itself is a obviously a depiction of, of race. We do see some British Empire troops in the background from other parts of the British Empire, mm-hmm. but most of them are not featured characters. But in this sort of ragtag crew that Steve Trevor puts together, we haven't really talked about the crew more specifically, but obviously there's him, there's Diana... There's a Moroccan guy who is, he's like sort of a spy type character. He's sort of shifty is his thing. Yeah, Sammy. Sammy. 
there's this Scottish guy who I guess he's supposed to be a sniper, but his thing is also he kind of has PTSD and is uncomfortable with shooting at people. And we have this indigenous character from the United States who is, he's sort of this tracker camp lead, like sort of, yeah, yeah, character, sort of uh, outdoorsman character. And I was going to ask you, how do you think the film handled depictions of race? I, I think there's a fairly obvious horribly issue about some of these but yeah i'll let you start and then i'll jump in with my thoughts yeah i mean again to throw back to the fact that they're trying to throw everything in at once i mean a great example of this is when diana and steve trevor are on the train station platform Hmm. and diana gets ice cream and she's like you should be very proud of yourself but in the wide shot they've put like an obscene amount of imperial troops just walking on the platform which i get it i understand but that's again not something that would be totally feasible charlie's our scottish guy the sniper and then sammy's our moroccan wannabe an actor but is i don't actually know what he does because that's again not very well outlined he like schmoozes people into giving them money or something i think is his original backstory Right, because that doesn't emphasize any bad stereotypes whatsoever. (laughs) I should, like, I was listening to an interview that Patty Jenkins did at a convention, and somebody in the audience actually asked her about this, and she made a point of saying that she wanted Diana, if she's going to be exploring the world of man for the first time, to see the world as it is diverse. My counter-argument to that would be, London, 1918, with the British forces, is not a purposely diverse place. And again, that goes back to the fact that there is a lot of imperialist mentality. Racism at this point, of course, is a big problem. These imperial troops would also be scattered across the front. They would not be back in London. And if they were, some might actually be segregated in different places. The U.S. actually has a big hand in this. They get really upset with the British for being okay with mixing. Ugh, I hate saying that. But yeah, the biggest thing for me, and again, because I study Canadian history and, and Canada, the First World War, is the depiction of Chief. That is actually his name, yeah. which is absurd in this film, is kind of horrific in my opinion there are very real indigenous men and women that enlist in the first and second world war Mm -hmm. and creating this character that's kind of like a drifter who first of all would have no means of getting to the front like absolutely none would not be allowed past any sort of line (laughs) and enforcing this this idea that he's this man for peace because he's felt conflict in his own time in his own country with his own people is again a storytelling element to tell the story of colonialism but it doesn't accurately depict the very real indigenous people that were on the front and that were soldiers and that 
you know, they enlisted for a plethora of reasons, but at least in Canada, I mean, some enlisted to get away from residential schools. Some enlisted because they knew that they would be fed and have health care if they enlisted. Some enlisted out of true patriotic duty and and some enlisted because of a family heritage, because of a lineage of this warrior spirit. Like there is so many diverse reasons for enlisting that just packing it all in into this one guy that's just kind of like trade and stuff is so disappointing and so upsetting and yeah I just I really do think that this movie failed particularly with this ragtag gang of characters because even though Patty Jenkins says that she wanted to unpack the cliches by pushing them a step further she just reinforces them like the the screenwriters just dig their heels in with them and then the characters never develop from there and they're they're used they're used yeah they're just they're used yeah, I agree with that. I watched this with my girlfriend, and, and when we were watching the movie, I sort of like rolled my eyes when this character came out. I'm like, can we have an indigenous character that isn't like a tracker character? Yeah. There's such a strong stereotype there of like, oh, if you're going to have an indigenous character, they need to be good at camping and tracking and all that stuff. Well, especially because I found like, first of all, there is ample record and ample testimony of indigenous people not liking the fact that British troops called them chief in the trenches because they aren't chief and this isn't their community and that is an appropriating term. Yeah. There's also a plethora of evidence showcasing that the British, again, leaning on stereotypes, tended to appoint enlisted indigenous soldiers as snipers thinking that they just like naturally have this knack for shooting stuff so i thought it was kind of interesting again not to like lean into a stereotype but we have charlie the scottish ptsd man who's a sniper and we do have an indigenous character that again if you're wanting to show at least some sort of a attempt at life on the front is again just it's he's so americanized And it's just so sad. Yeah, definitely. And I get that his character is partly there. He has this scene with Diana that is intended to be part of this, the spirit of evil is in all of man sort of thing, right? Where he's sort of, the the message, he doesn't say this explicitly in these words, but the message of the scene is, yeah, you may think Steve's a good dude, but his society is responsible for sort of brutalizing my society. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like that's sort of trying to use this character as like a lead-in for some of these themes the movie's trying to go for about the the spirit of war in, in everyone or something, but it's just so poorly handled. And then that scene, again, goes nowhere. Yeah. It goes nowhere. Yeah. And then that's it. So it's just, it's, it's disappointing. I wanted the ragtag gang to be better, but yeah. not today, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I always ask my guests this question, which is, what was your, from, from a historian's perspective, so in terms of the depiction of history in the film, not necessarily just as a viewer, what was your favorite thing about Wonder Woman? And also, the flip side, if you got to be the director of the film and you were empowered to change one thing about the film's representation of history, you can't change everything, but you could change one thing, what would you like to change and why? So the first part of that question, I get asked a lot. Mm-hmm. Because I go on a long tangent of why I hate the history in this movie and then end it by saying, but it's like a fun movie. It's fun. And then they go, well, why? Well, then what do you like about it? 
And honestly, I, I don't know. I think the big thing for me as a historian is that it brought the First World War to screen. Mm. That is incredible. That is so amazing. Even if it was for the wrong reasons, it reinvigorated the First World War in storytelling and film and in TV. And it's just exciting because I think without a movie like that, a movie like 1917 would have never have been made. Yeah, I think because we both live in Canada, it's easy to miss how little certain other countries, especially the United States, knows and cares about the First World War. I think in, in the United States, people are vaguely aware of it, but World War II is kind of the big feature film in a way. And First World War is always sort of treated as the coming attractions to the feature film that is the Second World War. First World War is obviously significant in the UK and things. But I think bringing a major feature film to the American market about the First World War is distinctive because so much of American popular culture about war history is World War II history. It's definitely daring, like it's a risk, you know. Sure, you can count on the global market to go oorah war in a film, but the First World War, because of its nuances, can be hard to sell as a entertainment point. The other thing, you know, to the second point of your question, what would I change? Yeah. And I would change that ragtag gang of misfits so fast. Yeah. I don't know. I just I feel like they were cheated in this film and they deserved so much more. And maybe there is maybe there's a lot more to their story that was left on the cutting room floor. I don't know. Yeah. But I'd love to just change that a little bit. The rest of it. If I only have to choose one. <sighs> OK. <laughs> if I only have to choose one. There's just so much stuff in this film that yeah. it could have been done so much better, but it wasn't. But it's still good. I know it's not the review you all wanted, but it's the review you've got. Cool. Is there anything else you wanted to mention about about Wonder Woman that we didn't get to? Oh, actually, yes. There is for any of you out there that want to know more about wonder woman's origins mm. in terms of who wrote it so dr william moulton marston mm -hmm. um we didn't get into it too much but he was one of the i think one of the leading guys to create the lie detector yes which or the device that sort of plays into that yeah which of course inspires the lasso of truth and all these other things right. but jill lapore has written a book called the secret history of wonder woman which goes into marston's life yeah. and for those of you who know lots about the comics but don't know lots about marston i highly highly recommend that you dig into his life because he's kind of a crazy guy huge feminist almost to the point of fault at some points takes on a few lovers there's there's a whole story there and the book is quite explicit and it's really fun so would highly recommend reading that if you wanted to know more about the comics and about the creator of wonder woman yeah I, i'll definitely put that in the reading recommendations for the podcast i did a little bit of background reading about him before the podcast he seems like an interesting guy i think he you know, this is some very cursory background reading, so don't quote me on this. But I think he made some comments that he believed one day women would run the world. Yeah. And he lived in a polyamorous relationship. So he's a very interesting person and creator of this comic. So worth checking that out. Melissa, this has been really fun talking to you about Wonder Woman. Do you have any other projects or, or social media pages that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah, so... I'm on Twitter, so at Melissa underscore wing. Melissa spelled the correct way. One L, two S's. 
But I just did a giant trip to Library Archives Canada, and there's a lot of really cool tidbits in there. I try and share little threads about things I find and talk about history of the Second World War and try and tweet regularly. So definitely follow me there if you want to know some cool tidbits from the from the archives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe when I start new things, so far, nothing else, just thesis work. Right. So yeah, if you want to read that, 2023 <laughs> on the UVic website. Cool. I think I remember you wrote a Twitter thread a while back about the history of the donut in the First World War. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fun one. Glad you got to go to Library and Archives Canada as well. It's been it's been tough for historians. For people who are listening to this who are not historians, this has been a tough point for historians during the pandemic is actually getting to go to the archive and read their or do their research. So. This has been a trial and a half. I went in November for the entire month of November. So the sweet spot while it was open and before it closed because of the Ottawa occupation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember we actually talked about this at the time. This is an aside, but I went there the week before you were there. That's right. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me today on the podcast. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening and thank you to Melissa for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I've included some reading recommendations in the show description. And if you'd like to see some historical photos related to today's topic, check out our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone you think would like it or leave a review. That sort of thing really makes a big difference for growing the audience of the show. If you're a fellow historian who'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you have any comments or topic suggestions you'd like to send in, feel free to contact me at offcampushistory at gmail.com. The music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Neth Karia. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history.